Good morning, and uh, it's good to be uh, together again, isn't it? The, it was John Stott who said, and uh, more than one occasion, I'm sure, that we should be people who doubly listen. We should be doubly listening people. Not double thinking, but double listening. What he meant was that what he was saying was that as Christians, we need to be able to listen to God's word. Of course, that is paramount. But we also need to, uh, you need to have the other ear, to listen to the world and what is being said out there. Because our job as believers, as, as Christians, as people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is to connect what is going on out there with what he would want. What his word teaches us. The two are meant to come together. It's very easy to, 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 to contain Bible truth within a bubble, right? And it, for it to be slightly abstract and out there. But that's not the truth of the Bible, is it? And that's not actually what God would want us to do. So we're going to make a departure today from our normal, our normal um, program. You know that we've been studying uh, Luke's Gospel over many weeks. And um, we'll be coming back to, um, to Luke. But we also thought it would be good that once in a while we're going to take a, a subject that's in the news. And we're going to... Uh, Think about how does this subject relate to what we believe the scripture says. And we're going to do that probably once a term. And uh, this is quite an unusual one. Actually, if I'd have prepared this this week rather than starting it the previous week, there's a couple of things that this week that I might have, but I just didn't have time to do them. But this is something that I cropped up about, uh, I read about two or three weeks ago, and something which I'd thought about previously as well. Okay. Taking... Uh, just uh, changing a well-known film title, Live or Let Die, because this week we're going to think about a strange sort of subject perhaps for us. We're going to think about the subject of assisted suicide. Assisted suicide. This subject has been in the news an awful lot, particularly in 2013 and 2014, and uh, it came up into the news again just two weeks ago because there's another bill that's going to go through. Whether it will go through Parliament, I doubt, this time, because of David Cameron's got more important things that he wants to give time to. But it no doubt will, this will crop up again in the very near future, uh, if, even if that bill doesn't go. There's a man that you may see, have seen his face in the news very often, Tony... Nicholson. Tony Nicholson was a, a man who's got locked-in syndrome. I say he was because he died in 2012. He died six days after his court case, which had been fought for quite a long time. His court case, he lost his court case, but then six days later he died anyway. He was arguing that, that he should have the right to die and that his carers should help him to do it. He's locked in syndrome, he's paralyzed for many years uh, following an accident and uh, um, following a stroke actually in 2005. The only, move <coughs> the only movement he had was, in his, was, was for his head. The rest of his body was totally paralyzed and he lost his fight. But then his widow then took the action further, picked it up again in 2014 and it went all the way to the Supreme Court but they lost their case too. But the judges at that point, although they lost the case, the judges pointed to the fact that actually they think there is a case here under the human rights legislation, which, and therefore they're pointing the way to the fact that actually they believe that change should come. 
Here's another headline. These are all headlines from newspapers or whatever else. Police review after retired GP doctor Ian Kerr admits helping patients to die. He confessed publicly to allowing, to, ki to effectively killing three, pa three patients at their request um, by administering drugs, drugs to do that. He, he wasn't prosecuted for, even though he confessed to that situation. Here's a more recent headline. Uh, uh, well, last year, one in five visitors to the Swiss assisted dying clinics come from Britain. People who are taken to Zurich with the express purpose of dying. And uh, the interesting thing is though everyone is pushing for a change, although there are many people, some people pushing for a change in the law uh, to allow people to, 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 to effectively take your life, to help them take your life, of all the people who have been gone to, to Switzerland who have been taken by other people, none, there have been no prosecutions. So it's worth bearing in mind. The police do not prosecute, basically, for people who assist others to take their lives. Here's the most recent headline. Legalize assisted suicide because choice, the most important principle in medicine, says the British Medical Journal. So doctors, at least those who are writing this, say that, that actually choice is the most important thing. And uh, Lord Faulkner, whose picture is there on the, on the right, Lord Faulkner was the one whose bill was going through Parliament at the time of the general election and was a fair way through Parliament, which would have allowed people to, uh, to assist. And here's another headline from the past, quite interesting. Assisted suicide supported by religious Britons. Um, it's in this, this was a, a commissioned by Dignitas, which is the group that are arguing for the change, or one of the main groups. They said 70% um, of religious Britons support a change in the law. If you did go through the whole article in the BBC News, you would find way down in the article that actually it says that the majority of religious people who went to church <laughs> did not support the law, a change in the law. But you had to look quite carefully for that. What are we talking about when we talk about assisted suicide? What do we mean? Well, as we said, when one or more individuals help another person commit suicide to take their own life, that by administering of drugs or an injection, usually, um, to bring about uh, a quick, quick death. So we're not, talking about, we're not talking about switching off. And by the way, I realize this could be a sensitive subject for some of us, and I, I, I understand that, because many of us have seen people who have suffered, and people who have died, people who have been on life support, machines. I have and I'm sure many of you have. So we need to be sensitive in the way we talk about these things. But this is when someone is commit, uh, allowed to commit suicide. So we're not talking about switching off a life support machine system for someone who has already been uh, confirmed as brain dead. We're not talking about that, right? That happens, right? Because once the brain is dead, in a sense, the person is no longer there. The personality is gone. We're not talking about that. Neither are we talking about the treatment to ease pain that will, in fact, hasten death. So many people, when they're in hospice or even not in hospice, towards the end of their life, they'll be administered morphine, won't they, to, to treat the pain, ever-increasing doses. That, do that morphine will bring about their death. It kills you. 
So we're not talking about that either. We're talking about specifically when someone feels that they do not want to go on living and they're they're treated or helped by somebody else to bring about death, their death, as quickly as possible. And uh, the word that we use is euthanasia, which means good death. The first recording of history of that word, euthanasia, was when a, a Roman historian records that Emperor Augustus had his euthanasia. He died in the, wi- in the arms of his wife, Livia. That was his euthanasia. That was a good way for him to die in the arms of his wife. I have to say that actually the, some historians think that his wife actually poisoned him. So it begins to raise questions about what actually is going on and how well, these things can easily get, um, well, can be mixed motives, certainly. Here's a, and of course, now people talk about words with mercy killing or death with dignity. And of course, words like mercy and dignity are good words, aren't they? We just need to be careful, don't we, with words. Here's an extreme example I came across of, of a misuse of words. The, a German agency for transporting people to the death camps was called the Charitable Company for the Transport of the Sick. You need to be careful with words. Words can be used in all sorts of ways. So when we talk about mercy killing and dignity, yes, they come into it, but we need to be careful that we don't get pulled along just by certain words and the way they sound or the way that they feel. Okay, here's someone that you recognize. Um... As I've become older, this is Joe Brand, I want to give an assurance to the people I love that the circumstances of their death will be good to be celebrated and their final hours will be reflective of a life well lived. That sounds good, doesn't it? In some ways we could probably say yes to that. But then you begin to think the circumstances of their death will be good. Hmm. What do we mean by that? The circumstances of their death will be good. Is that possible? Can we make it that way? Hmm. The subject of the euthanasia is an important one because actually it touches on many, it touches on some other issues. Issues that I'm not an expert in, right? But I'm going to raise them. Some of you will know more about these things than I do. Um, And that's partly the reason for doing for doing this topic. I'm just going to pick on four of them. Suffering. What is our view of suffering? Now, none of us like suffering. Let's be honest. We would avoid suffering. We're not, and, in a, and we know that God did not intend suffering to come into our world. That's, and in the world to come, we know that the suffering will not be there. The things that we face now will not be in the age to come. There is a view in the, in the West that medicine means that we do not have to suffer. Probably a view that's not held in the majority of the world because suffering and death is such a part of their lives in the way that it is not for us. We, we begin to think that science can sort out everything for us, that therefore we should not have to suffer. But does there come a point... There comes a point, doesn't there, when our lives do wear out, our bodies do wear out, and we do suffer. Some of us know it now. I know it now in a small way, a very small way. But things that I used to be able to do, I can't do now. 
and there's some of you that have experienced a lot more of that than I do, because we are wearing out. Our bodies do cave in. We trust that what's on the inside will be renewed, but the outside won't. And so we suffer. And does there come a point in our lives when it is not worth living? Does there come a point when there is no point to life itself? This man, from what we read, believed that was the case. And we should be really sad and we should be really compassionate with people who who suffer. They they deserve our, our love and our compassion. We should weep with those who weep. Here's smiling Nick Ross, <coughs> face that we all sort of connect, connect with. How about this? I see it as inevitable that society will become more understanding and more sophisticated, more sophisticated about dying. It must surely be wrong for society to insist that people suffer. Well, on the face of it, we'd agree with that, wouldn't it? We don't want people to suffer. It must surely be wrong, though, for society, note the words, be wrong for society to insist that people suffer. Is there no value in suffering? What does the Bi- Here's the questions. I'm not going to give you the answer, but what does the Bible teach us about suffering? What does Jesus teach us about suffering? We need to be careful that we don't just write suffering off and think that it's entirely bad and it has no value at all. The Christian message is based on a, on a Christ who came and suffered for us for great value. Here's a man also who's got the same problem as uh, Nicholson. His name's Bram Harrison. He's got locked-in syndrome. So this guy can only move his eyes and his eyelids. That's the only muscles in his body that work from following a, a um, cycling, mountain biking accident when he was 20. Poor chap. Name's Brown Harrison. He lives up in my part of the world, up in the Midlands. He was asked about, when, when he was going through his treatment, he was asked about whether they wanted to resuscitate him should, he, should his heart stop. And his reply was to the doctors, I want to live. I want to live. Yeah, I want to be resuscitated. And, um, and then he, this is a quote from him. I don't want people to think that locked-in syndrome is unbearable. I enjoy my rather limited life. He talks about how he enjoys films. He enjoys family. And this guy, just to prove it, is a DJ on the local radio station. With his one eye, he operates the machines that plays the records and can communicate. He's got a life. His life is impaired in very significant ways, but he has a life, and a life that he wants to live and a life that he wants to share. So people respond in different ways, don't they, to, to their circumstances. Here's another issue that it raises <coughs> or touches on. Disability. There are, basically, there are three groups of people that have been opposed to assisted suicide in this country. They are faith groups. That's not just Christians. That's the other faith groups as well. 
all of the faith groups, I think, probably, are opposed to assisted suicide. Um, another group was generally the medical profession. Their view was that they were there to, to enhance life, protect life, save life, and they were not called upon to take life. That may be changing. And the third group of people that are by and large opposed to assisted suicide are the people who work with or, or who are disabled themselves. Uh, I always remember, it will stay with me, I trust, for, uh, sure it will stay with me a long time, the, the day that I spent at the end of the, Paralymp at the Paralympics. It was an incredibly uplifting experience to see these athletes with all their disabilities, doing, these, doing things that I couldn't do. And I've got, I've got basically all my bits and pieces. But they could do things that I couldn't do, and they could do them. Do that. And it was fantastic. The sense of celebration, the sense of... It was, it was wonderful. It was so uplifting. Next time you get the chance to go to the Paralympics, go, because it is so, so good. And yet there's a thing in there in our society, isn't it strange, that there's many people who are not allowed to get to that stage... Many of them are, of course, aborted in the womb because they're seen or potentially seen to be disabled. Disability. This is an advert placed by one of the disability groups. What's the cost of euthanasia? You are. They are concerned, and I would say rightly concerned, about what the pressures will be on people like them who are disabled once, if, if with economic resources being ever tighter, cost of health care being ever tighter, what would it be like if you, were, if you were disabled and you also were depressed? My mom says to me at times, I feel a bit of a burden. How many people say that? I feel a bit of a, I don't want to, I don't want to be a burden, she'll say. Well, if people start to feel a burden, how might that lead them to think and to act? Here's a lady. She's, she, this lady has done amazing things. You should see her CV. I think she was, she's certainly, I'm not sure if she's on chair of the Olympic Committee, but she's, very, she's into all sorts of things. This is what she said when Lord Faulkner's bill was going through. This is what she said in the House of Lords. She's been, she's, she's been paralyzed for 50 years this lady, Baroness Campbell, this saying at the end, when it, she stood up and she said, that, or she didn't, she didn't stand up because she can't, sorry. She said, this bill, what we're talking about today, offers me no comfort, no comfort to me. It frightens me. It frightens me for how it might mean for people like me and others in the future. Disability. And we as Christians know that we should speak up for those that cannot speak for themselves. We know that we should be on the side of the weak and the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden. That's because that's where Jesus was. That's what Jesus said what he was about. We read just a few weeks back in Luke 4, didn't we? When he stands up in Nazareth and he says what he's about. That included the recovery of the sight for the blind, the release for those that were oppressed. And uh, like... Like that thing, uh, like the, the statement that's written above the doors of Coney Hill Hospital, as it was, Coney Hill Apartments now. Bear ye one another's burdens. First from Galatians. Bear ye one another's burdens. And this then leads us on to this wider question of morality, right? 
what is right and what is wrong, and who decides? Well, for many, for many years, our society, our laws in this country were based fairly and squarely upon the Bible, right? The Old Testament as well as the New. And that's where our, much of our legislation still, still you know, is, is derived from that. But things are changing, aren't they? Many people do not accept that the Bible is the word of God, and worse still, many people, or not worse still, but as well as that, many do not believe that there's a thing called absolute truth. Here's Solzhenitsyn writing about communism, one of the great minds of the last century. Communism has never concealed the fact that it rejects all absolute concepts of morality. It is relative. Depending upon circumstances, any act including the killing of thousands, could be good or bad. See, if you, if, you start saying, if you start moving the goalposts, where do they end up? They can end up nowhere. They end up wherever whoever's in charge thinks they should be, and that's the danger, isn't it? And the truth is, this is now true, more or less true, about Western society. We are based, becoming increasingly based on humanist philosophy, which is where communism also has its base. Where man is the centre and man decides what happened. It's all relative. It's down to what the majority think. But of course the majority are actually silent. <laughs> and so it's based on what a few, a strong minority, think. And we need to be aware of that. Where do we stand? Are we going to stand, are we, and I mean we, you and I, are we going to stand on God's word as truth? And finally, connected to that, the whole issue of personal choice. The modern holy grail is personal freedom. My rights. I do what I want, provided it doesn't hurt anybody else, although invariably it does, in some way or other. I do what I want. Here's another face that you'll recognize, Simon Weston. And again, you know, my, I can't imagine what this guy's had to suffer. And of course, he's faced periods of severe depression as a result of his, his, uh, his injuries. He says, we live in a free society with all the choices that go with that. We choose when to marry, have children, where to live, who to consult for advice. In fact, how we should live our lives. This should include the opportunity to choose the time we die. We choose everything else. Why can't we choose when we die? And again, you think, okay, these things seem to sound, there's a sort of ring to that, isn't there? Some sort of sense in that. In the 1970s, moving on quickly, Kim and I, uh, when we were young people, went to hear Francis Schaeffer and Everett Koop. Everett Koop was the chief medical officer in the United States. Schaeffer, of course, is a, a great theologian. And um, they were preaching then and speaking then about the dangers of abortion, because the Abortion Act hadn't come in many years previously, 1967. They were speaking about the dangers of abortion, euthanasia, infanticide. And these guys were saying... Christians, these things will happen. They will happen in your lifetime unless, unless we recognize what is going on. These are the changes, that, these are the winds that will blow through our societies in the West. Many people are attracted to the benefits of some sort of euthanasia program, yet undoubtedly many have not thought about where it will or could lead. 
Will a society that has assumed the right to kill infants in the womb because they are unwanted, imperfect, or merely inconvenient? What about that, actually, the other day in our parliament? That our parliament couldn't even bring itself to say that we will not have designer babies. That's effectively what they did. They couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves to even say that. They said, oh, we really understand, don't we? It's, it's okay. No problem. Have difficulty, that, that sort of society, will we have difficulty in assuming the right to kill other, be, other human beings, especially older adults who are judged unwanted, deemed imperfect physically or mentally, or considered a social nuisance? If you'd said when the Abortion Act came in, in 1967, they inserted the social clause, didn't they, to, to take to take the, the, the health of the mother into consideration. needed to be signed by two doctors. If you'd said then, when that act was going through Parliament, if you'd said that 8 million babies in Britain would be aborted in the next 50 years, which is where we are now, just about, if you'd said that 8 million would die, most of them under the, so, under the social clause, and that one in three women would have an abortion, you'd have been laughed at. You'd have been told you are an idiot, you're, a sca you're just scaremongering, and yet that is what has happened in our society. So you need, we, do need to be aware, we do need to be aware of where do these things lead to. We may not always be able to control people, people for good reason. Let's be, let's be fair here. There may be people for good and right reasons who want to bring in assisted suicide as they see it. But that doesn't mean that it will end where they think it will end. So we right to be careful. Time has gone. Really quickly, we're going to let's, let's look at some scriptures. How do we do respond to this? How did Jesus respond to things? Well, he responded with grace and truth. There's a way of remembering it. If you'd like to do the same, there are plenty of tattooists that will be happily tattooed that are there. Yeah, you could have grace and truth. Yeah, there you go. Next week, we look forward to seeing it, all right? Okay, and we need to reckon on God's truth, don't we? And here are two truths, absolutely foundational truths, that Chris actually brought out very, very well in the first half of our service. That God is sovereign and life is precious. We mustn't forget those two things. They are absolutely fundamental to everything else. God is sovereign and life is precious. God is sovereign because he is the source of all life. In the beginning, God created. It didn't come about by anybody else. The only reason we're here, you're here, I'm here today, is because God created. You didn't choose to be here. God creates life. And secondly, the, the earth, this is a wonderful thing. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who in it. All who live in it. All who live in this world, this verse says, belong to the Lord. You see, that's a completely that's the very opposite of humanist philosophy that says actually we choose. The Bible says you don't. The Bible says actually whether people believe it or not, God made you. And you're going to give an account to God. You might not think it, you might think that's total rubbish, but it doesn't change it if it's true. It doesn't change it one either if that's what's true. That you belong to God and that every individual out there belongs to God. They're not just, we're not just, they're not just here. Life is precious. So God created man in his own image, in his own likeness. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight to whom we must give account. The, 
the, the need to take... <coughs> if you took life in the Old Testament, you would pay the ultimate penalty. You would lose your life. That's how serious it was. If you took someone else's life. How do we respond? Okay, we're going to just look at some verses together very quickly, and Sam's going to come and read them to us now. It speaks all about our relationship with God. So Sam, come and read Psalm 139, uh, verses 1 to 16 for us. You see, you won't find assisted suicide if you look it up in your concordance. Jesus didn't actually say anything specifically about assisted suicide. So we need to look a bit slightly deeper if we're going to see what God's word says about this. Thank you, Sam. I'm sorry I've left so little time to look at this passage, but please look at it again yourselves because it contains so many wonderful truths. See, right at the beginning, he starts off, O Lord, he recognizes that there's a Lord in heaven. There's a God who knows everything. In those first six verses, Uh, it's basically God knows everything about me. He knows everything about me. He knows when I sit, when I rise. He knows when I go out. He knows when I go to bed. He knows my every word, even before I started to form it, even even before the thought is there, he knows it. It's amazing, isn't it? So he knows what you're thinking. David, I'll pick on you. He knows what you're going to be doing after this service. He knows it. He knows every, every, everything, right? It's amazing, isn't it? He knows everything about us. Jesus talked about, didn't he, knowing every hair. He could count every hair on every person's head. There are 3,300,000. He knows it. I love that line in uh, verse 3. It says, you are familiar with all my ways. 
your familiar. Familiar, family, speaks of relationship. And all the way through this psalm, we see that the relationship between God and his creation, God and this person, God and us, and our identity as, in, as human beings is not based on how good we are. It's not based on, on what, what we're able to, to achieve, not based on our physical condition or age or anything else. Our identity is this. Our identity is based that we're made by God who knows us. We don't have to be anything else. Our identity is, is that in, and of course in Christ, is that it's a God who made us, knows us, and loves us as his children, as uh, Chris was reminding us earlier. Verses 7 to 12 basically say you can't hide from God. You can't, you can't go, you can't escape. I've already had experiences this week of children hiding after they've been naughty. And we go looking for them. We cannot hide from God. You can't escape. He's there. He's everywhere. Wherever you go, he's there. Even in the dark places, he's there because they're not dark to him. talks about that in these verses. And Jesus said, didn't he, I will be with you always, all the days. And we need to encourage one another with these things. And particularly as people go through difficult times, we need to be there to say, I, don't, I, may, not, I may not be able to understand what you're going through because I've not experienced it. But there's a God who does. And there's a God who's going to be with you through it. And there's a God who's going to hold your hand and hold you fast, it says here. Hold you fast through whatever life throws at you. Including those last moments or those last weeks or months, whatever it is, when you know that the time is coming for you to leave this life. He's going to hold you fast and take you into the next. We need to encourage one another with those words. And then finally, the last passage, verse 13 to 16, it says, He knows us from the very beginning to the very end, and the beginning is before you were born. It says that here. I knew you in the womb. I knew you. I saw you there. I knew you. And I know you at the end. I know you at the end of your day. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Every single one of the days that you live on this life on earth were ordained for you. God is sovereign, not man. We do not have the right. People do, sadly, and we need to be sympathetic and and share and do everything we can to draw alongside them. But we don't have the right to take our own lives according to scripture. Only God does that. Only God has that right. But he knows us not just to the end of our life, because in the earlier verses it's talked about us in terms of the heavens, the depths. God, you see, all of this stuff, a lot of the, the thinking behind the stuff that we're talking about earlier is based on the fact that this life is all there is. And that it is, is it. So if you're suffering at the end, why not bring it to a quick conclusion? Because there's nothing afterwards. That's a lie. That's a lie. There's an eternity afterwards. You don't, that's not bringing it to an end. It's bringing this life to an end, but it's not bringing life to an end. We need to say, actually, no, the scripture's not about that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says there's much, much more to come. 
And who knows if people take their lives early and they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. What have they done? What have they done? So I think we need to be really careful. Our identity, our security is in God's hands. And eternity is in God's hands too. That verse in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes that says you've set eternity into the hearts of us. We need to believe in truth. We also need grace for people who are suffering. This lady typifies that. She's the lady who founded the hospice movement in this country. She's a Christian. It was out of her faith that she did this because she believed that people needed to be treated with dignity right up until their last days and to have the, the care and compassion that were needed. You matter because you are you and you matter to the last moment of your life. We will do all we can, not only help you die peacefully, but also live until you die. And we should share that as Christians. Share that. And we should share that with people that we know. Well, the folks that we know that are, that are in those times, we need to be the ones, along with others. Thankfully, there are many others who are not Christians who share that view. But we also need to be those that would say, yes, we want to be, gra- we want to be grace to you. We want to be compassion to you. We want to do everything that we can to help you through these times. And maybe the action for you is, as a result of this sermon, is that maybe you know of somebody who's in that phase of life. Is there anything that you can do to be an encouragement to them? To tell them that they matter. They matter because they matter to God.